From the cradle to the grave, you are measured against the yardstick of average, judged according to how closely you approximate it or how far you are able to exceed it. A modern conception of the average person is not a mathematical truth, but a human invention, created a century and a half ago by two European scientists, Quetelet and Gorton, to solve the social problems of their era. It's what Todd Rose speaks about in his bestseller, End of Average. Juliana Jackson has dug deep into the minds of data analytics leaders, people that work every day with measurements and metrics, to uncover what mental models they have built to help them understand the world. Join us while we focus on the stories of data analytics leaders and how they use mental models to challenge others to think differently by deviating from conventional approaches. And we are back live with the season finale of Standard Deviation Podcast. And I am here with a very special guest. I'm here with Peter Caputa, the CEO of Databox. How are you, Peter? Great, Joanna. Great. And it's an honor to be on your season finale here. Yeah. So I was telling Peter before we started recording that I had a data analysts this whole season, like the cream of the cream of the, the data analyst world. So I was thinking maybe as the season finale to just to switch switch it a bit and have someone that actually sells a tool that is used by a data analyst. But we're still gonna keep the same, you know, the same conversations in the podcast. It's just I wanna prove myself a point if the people that sold the tool have a different mentality than people that they use uh, the tools. And this is just me being a very big nerd. <laughs> I hope I pass. Yeah, this is it's a CXL exam. <laughs> We've been told our exams are pretty horrible. Yeah, so. yeah I get fired right if I don't pass. So. <laughs> oh man, no, no, no. So Peter, you were the 15th employee at HubSpot, employee number 15. I googled you a lot. I prepared for this episode. If you're watching or hearing this, <laughs> I did prepare for this episode, but. I think it was really cool because and I'm going to oversimplify it, but you have done an amazing job scaling their sales operation and you played a pretty big role in what HubSpot is today. I've listened to uh, a couple of your interviews, even the one you did with uh, Pep. And fast forward to today, like we're here today. So what happened? You know, you are the CEO of Databox and Databox is simply put a data visualization and reporting tool. And I want to know, like, how did you went from HubSpot? Like the, what happened in that few month period, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I had a great run at HubSpot, as you, as you mentioned. I won't, I won't recount the whole thing, but I was the 15th employee, the fourth salesperson. And I started the partner program for marketing agencies that, that where we had thousands of marketing agencies that we taught and we taught them inbound marketing and we taught them how to, how to sell inbound marketing, how to use HubSpot and how to deliver inbound marketing services and a whole slew of other things um, that we taught them. And so that worked out quite well for those agencies. I'm still friends with many of those agencies. You know, some of them literally, many of them were really small agencies on their dining room table and now they're running, you know, five, 10, 15. I know one of them running in a $30 million agency that it grew in the time that I knew them. Uh, That worked out really well for the agencies. It also worked out really well for HubSpot. It became 40% of HubSpot's revenue, not to mention a great army of agencies out there spreading the news of HubSpot and why HubSpot's great and 
and of course, helping the HubSpot customers be successful on the platform, which is probably the most important thing. So that worked out. I enjoyed that time. I learned an immense amount, but I really missed being an entrepreneur after HubSpot got, you know, as big as it did. And so when I left, it was, I want to say like 1500 employees. It was well over a hundred million in revenue. It was a public company and there, there was still stuff to figure out and the people there are still figuring stuff out. But the way, the way I look at it, the earlier you are in a business, the more consequential your decision and the more set in stone your strategy becomes. And I wanted to pursue a different strategy. So I started looking for a company to either, to actually, I planned to start a company of my own. I had an idea for it and I started meeting with VCs and I ended up meeting with a VC at Accomplice here in Boston, TJ Mahoney. And he said, well, you have to meet Davarin Gaberbeck, who's the founder of Databox. Databox had been around for a while already. And I said, well, I don't really want to join a company. And you know, short the shorter version is I ended up after about six months of some due diligence, working with the team a little bit, you know, in my spare time, decided to jump on board and as CEO and, and run Databox. And what I loved about it, it, well, first of all, the team, the product engineering team, which was really all that was there at the time, was great, is great. I think all of them are still here. There might be like one engineer that left, but of the original 13 or so people that were there when I joined, they're all still there. And so I love the team. I also love the space, right? I love helping marketers. I love helping go-to-market professionals um, build their business. Uh, and I love data. I'm an engineer, uh, chemical engineer. I went back and learned how to write code along the way a while ago and just love numbers. And one of the things at HubSpot that I really picked up is like how to run a business by the numbers. Everything at HubSpot is data-driven from marketing to sales, to support, to, to um, account management, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so that, that diligence and cadence of using data to make decisions, I love that process. And, and so Databox has more data than HubSpot, right? We have integrations with 70 plus tools. We predefine those integrations so that we're pulling in data in a structured way and can compare, the, compare that data across companies. And so one of the things that I really just excited about a data box is our, our, our ability to, to really help companies analyze their performance so that they can improve their performance and do that across so many different functions. I really like Databox and I found it for the first time when I was uh, the head of growth of another company that was my job before CXO. And I remember the CEO came to a meeting one day with Databox. So Databox reports one of your uh, data boards, I think you're calling it. Yeah. And he said, this is what I was looking for because <laughs> we had the sales team. <laughs> and I'll never forget, he came in the meeting room. We had like, this is pre-COVID, right? Right. So he came in the in the conference room in the office with his laptop and put it on, you know, on the, on the <laughs> table and said, this is it. Ah. He's yeah. like, I'm going to find everything right now. I mean, HubSpot is a great tool. A lot of people use it as a CRM, as a right. customer support tool, as an email marketing tool, as a, I don't know, content marketing tool. But their reporting sucks, in my opinion. No comment. <laughs> you cannot comment, but this, you know, like this, I have the editorial. Yeah. To say it sucks my big stream. They... But they are the system for a lot of company functions, especially if you go all in on HubSpot and use all of the tools. And so all your data is in there. As far as like telling a story with data or focusing on what's most important, yes, it's. I think it's hard to use 
of hard to use any tool that's your system of record to really show the most important metrics and then be able to drill down effect. And so, yeah, I think for that reason, uh, we exist. And HubSpot is actually not our most popular integration, but one of our most popular integrations, top top 10. It's both, very both simple to integrate it too. Like it took me a minute. What I use it for with HubSpot too, because I needed this, this reporting to show what the customer success is doing because we have the sales component. But mm-hmm. I also want to use it for renewals because I want to see that pipeline. So Got it. Um, that's why I was on your uh, customer. You had a renewal pipeline set up in HubSpot. Yeah, I, so you wanted yeah, to yeah. That in the data box. Got it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It does the use case. And I'm sending events from the CDP to mm-hmm. HubSpot. And then those events are moving people from a stage to another. And I just wanted to see, you know, like, what's the timeline of those events? Got it. So I'm ex- I'm excited to, I was excited to, to remember, you know, that story with my CEO. I was like, I'm not going to kill myself to figure out this report in HubSpot. I'm just going to go for data blocks. And I didn't right. ask my manager that day if I can connect it to our, to our data. I just went. Yes, did and, it. But then when I showed him how cool it is and how simple it is and it was so easy to hand it over to the um, to the uh, to the team lead that has to handle this reporting. Yeah, it was great. So I'm I'm okay. excited. That's but a good story. Yeah, has like a like has an audience and some guests that you could call them data visualization nerds and geeks. Right. I am one of those people. So this is when I'm gonna start. You know the actual questions that I wanted. And irrelevant. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I'll add add a data point for you that might be interesting to you. Our most common users are executives. So CEOs, founders, owners is our, like if I had to find a group of customers, it's the largest percent. It's not 50%, but like that is the largest percent of of our users. And after that, it's actually marketing experts and data analysts is lower. And you could probably guess as to why. But, you know, I think the person that cares most about performance of a company is the person that's responsible for, for, for the company's success, the owner, CEO, founder. And so they're often the ones to start the account, ironically, or maybe not so ironically, but oftentimes they delegate, of course. And so when we jump on calls and our sales team jumps on calls with, with prospects, oftentimes it's with the manager or the ops person, or the analyst yeah. uh, that's on the call that's going to be the one that has to figure out how to use data. You have a great documentation. I got to give you props for that. There's that's not new. too many SaaS tools that have good documentation. For me, documentation is the most important thing. And as an ops person myself, I cannot live without having things in order. But yeah. I get what you're saying with the data analyst, yes, because we like to configure data and we like to look at it in a way but I also think there's this stigma on data visualization tools because we think they are not, um, I guess, mm, good enough for what we want to do. And I think it's wrong because sometimes we're sacrificing speed for that complexity. Yeah. And marketing, when you're a data analyst, and I'm going to probably get cursed out for this on LinkedIn, but when you're trying to help the marketing team, the marketing team has to have a different speed or the sales team has to have a different speed than a data team would. Yep. Because data team has to work with complexities and, you know, delicate, um, delicate projects and very unstructured data. Mm-hmm. But marketing and sales, if they would spend so much time in this process, they won't be able to execute. 
So sometimes I think this the data reporting and visualization tools might get a bad name just because they are not understood as to their purpose. I could definitely have used GA or another tool to get the reportings that I wanted. But why? When it's simpler like this, then I can help the team move faster. Yep. But just to just to talk about the narrative of data visualization, there is this dangerous belief that because data is objective, right? Numbers are objective, and you you like numbers, right? It can yeah. speak it can speak for uh, itself. So data can speak for itself. As long as the charts and tables and slides are being accurate, then the analyst work is done. And you can replace analysts with any person that would present a, a report. So this is uh, considered analogous to stopping basically and just going home after running 25 miles on a race and believing that you have completed the full marathon. <laughs> so how do, yeah. So how do you guys help your users? And this is genuine uh, curiosity question. How do you guys uh, help your users to not, um, you know, fall into this trap that if the the reports are pretty, the data is clean, you know, they're, they're working. Great question. I think, so your audience, I understand, is, is probably more of a data analyst, say, in a larger firm, right, where they might have a data warehouse, you might have a customer data platform, you, you might have, you might be using SQL to run, you know, reports, like you're going to use a BI tool, maybe do some more sophisticated math to validate that it's statistically relevant. Also it's a lot of marketers too. A lot okay. of marketers. Got it. Yeah. So we, we don't play in the, in the hardcore business intelligence space. Like I just explained, as you know, we, we serve business users as opposed to analysts. And the way that we do that is by building deep integrations with tools and predefining metrics that are common and or enabling simple creation of metrics, you know, such as like sessions by web page, for example, on mobile or something like that, right? So using Google Analytics data, for example. So we there's so there's literally thousands and thousands of metrics that you could visualize in Databox. We also do integrate with SQL databases and spreadsheets and what am I missing? And, and you can push data in via our API. However, you know once you get the data in there, it's relatively simple visualization. You can put it on a line chart, right? You can put it on a pie chart. You can put in a number, just put, present the number, and then you can track that performance over time. So our tool is much more built for performance management, performance monitoring than it is, say, analysis from a data analyst. And so I think your question, I gave that for background. I think your question, though, is more around what, how do we help companies realize that there's more to be done other than just creating the reports, right? Yeah, it's, it's, you're, it's a good question from an analyst perspective. But if you, if you consider that the majority of our users, the people monitoring the dashboards are the business users, it's not as big of a problem, right? Because if the sales leader is looking at a dashboard around how many deals are closed, what his forecast is or her forecast is, and how, you know, what their average bookings are, like they don't need someone to interpret that for them. And they can go directly into action mode and say, hey, to the sales team, we're way off on this number, or our forecast doesn't look good enough, we need to work on it. And so the the, I think some of those decisions are a little simpler and the person monitoring the data can take action on it. So mm -hmm. we get less of that. Now I will say, and maybe this is not the exact question that you're asking, but I will say that 
most companies are not regimented. Most small businesses, especially, are not regimented around performance management. They might build dashboards and then check them randomly, right? They might build dashboards and never share like an interpretation of the results and discuss what they're going to do based off of the data or share, you know, write up what they're going to do based on the data. They're not adopting their plan, say on a quarterly or even an annual basis based on the data. They're still doing it based on what they observe or their hunches. And so I think there's still a lot of room for improvement for companies to adopt a more strict or standardized cadence for reviewing, discussing, and determining next steps in order to improve performance. So I don't know if that's the question you're asking or not. No, it's no, it's cool because it's a different use case. That's why it's very interesting to me because, like, of course, I will always think like an analyst. But yeah, at the same time, I'm also thinking as a marketer and as a salesperson because I'm, you know, there. there's, of course, analysts that just stick in that, you know, corner. Yeah. In my case, I have to also be a salesperson, a customer, right, assistant, right. and then everything. <laughs> and that's true so, of most companies that are, you know, small, mid-sized companies, right? You, you have to you have to think in all those you have to wear all those hats uh, sometimes so I'm thinking in your case like how would you define someone's success with your platform so yes yeah, performance metrics but if the um, person that is looking at those metrics or at your dashboards doesn't know what those are and what they can do with them yeah even if even if founders and CEOs see, see those platforms yeah. <laughs> We tend to do well with like the founders and CEOs who are data driven or are performance focused. They tend to have that competence of being able to know, you know, that they're like, I think half the population, frankly, is afraid of numbers, right? You show them a chart and they're like, I don't know how to read that. Or, (laughs) you know, you give them a few numbers and they're like, well, how are the, well, what's this mean? So you know, if you remove that half of the population, there is a population of, of executives that are data-driven, numbers-focused. So we tend to do well there. But. That's cool. You know, it's, it's very interesting to me because I think in a way it helps the... I just I just think it helps the process of being data-informed for sales and marketing teams because it's very hard sometimes to move. And most of the times, even directional data, because your tool provides directional data. It's not, you know, analyzed or extra analyzed data. It's just, you know, good direction. Okay, so this is it. Okay, you have a very low number of book sales. Your traffic is bad. Right. You have to do something about it. So I think in a way, in your case, success would be just uh, the fact that you don't compromise speed in a team. You can quote me on that. (laughs) (laughs) You try not I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. But... I, think, I think you were asking before, though. Tell me if I'm off track, but you were asking before, how do we judge the success of our customers, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, what is it? Because in my opinion, this is yeah. what I see as the objective, you know, as the new right. bystander. <laughs> right. So like any software company, right, the simplest thing to do is just measure, you know, are people using the product or not? And there's different ways to measure that. There's the, literally like, are they logging in and using the data, using yeah. the tool? You know, to what extent are they using the software? Like at HubSpot, we used to measure how frequently people write a blog post in a given month. At Databox, we're looking at things like how many dashboards do they have set up? So simple things like that. We have also developed like a customer lifecycle stages, which are actually in the process of kind of updating and changed quite a bit in the last, since we've done, that, done this. But, but we've basically looked at all of the features 
of our product and correlated that to customer retention of our own customer retention. And we're able to identify which features and which level of usage correlated well or better to retention. And so we, we kind of broke up the customer base based off of that. We're in the process of switching to like a customer score where there'll be different components of it. But it, you know, I don't have data to, unfortunately, to to know, you know, did the customer improve their results as a result of using Databox? You know, we do case studies and, and we'll interview customers mm-hmm. and we'll get that kind of feedback. But I don't have like a, a way in the product. If you can come up with something, that'd be great. But um, I don't have a way in the product to really see that. We are start, we did just build a data science team and we are starting to look at actual aggregate data and things like that. And we're actually going to be launching a benchmark feature in the product that will kind of show people how they're performing, but we haven't thought about how we would use that to determine like success with our product yet. So I think there's a lot of work to be done there for us to really understand there. I think there's also change management that needs to occur. As I was inferring before, I think a lot of companies aren't good at performance management. And that's the kind of stuff that happens outside of our software. You know, do they have a meeting each week where they discuss their performance? Do they, you know, report that performance? Um, do they make decisions based off of it? So, so it's, it's a work in progress. We still have work to do there. Yeah. It's basically identifying what, how people make progress with using a data box. And it's, 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 Customer research in that sector is so tedious. And I know because I, I yeah. this, you know, my, my backyard. Absolutely. And, yeah. and it's tedious yeah. because even if you do 12 interviews of jobs to be done, for instance, and you mm-hmm. will get like some sort of patterning responses, it, it wouldn't be necessarily correct to uh, compare those 12 responses to, uh, I guess, I don't know, 10,000 users. Because right. you're not going to be right. There's such a, a bias that as soon as... As soon as you ask a group of customers and and they say yes, I'll talk to you, like that is automatically a biased group of customers because they're the ones that are willing to spend an hour with you. The ones yeah. that aren't willing to spend an hour with you are the ones that that are the problems, right? That you need to help more. And so, yeah, uh, we we do customer reviews. We're at, about to launch a tool. We're calling it Reports, and it allows people mm-hmm. to create an automated PDF. They can also go in and add their, you know, add their text and tell their story and everything in a manual way. So I interviewed like 12 customers and the ones that wanted to talk to me are the ones that love us already, right? (laughs) The ones that are already doing reporting or want to do reporting or, you know, it's like there's still this group of customers out there or users or non-customers prospects that, that aren't doing that. And so I don't get that signal, so... Yes, but I like the fact that you're aware of this because a lot of times we are so obsessed with causality and why and why, and, you know, like we're, we're just like so happy to just yeah. get some positive responses that we forget about, you know, the scale of it. So I really yeah. think that you're very yeah. grounded like that. And I like, yeah. I like that. And you're also very honest, which is, yeah. which is, which yeah, is no, I, I have trouble not being honest, but one of my favorite phrases to say is that, is that data will will tell you, might tell you why something's happening. It may not also, like you might not be able to find the answer, but it'll never tell you why not, why people aren't doing things, right? So, and that's that's the crux. And I think back to your original question, because I have worked with analysts like that who think that they delivered the report and their job is done. They're also so confident in their, in their recommendations, even though they may be in left field. And so I think the problem with that approach to running a business is that you don't ever understand why not. If, if an analyst sits in a room with a spreadsheet 
and a bunch of data. Even it could be your use customer usage data. It could be your the data your sales team collects. It could be the data that your your customer service team collects. It still has a bias in it, in that you don't understand why people aren't doing things. And so the only way to get that is what my old CEO, my old boss, Brian Halligan used to say, and I know he didn't make it up, but I got it from him, but is like being in the coal face. And so like he would always ask us as managers and as leaders is like, are you spending enough time in the coal face? And what that meant is like, are you talking to customers? Are you talking to the frontline team, your frontline team members? Uh, and do you really understand what's going on? Because they're the ones that will hear why not. The salespeople will hear why people don't buy sometimes, right? Yeah. And, the, and the customers will be able to tell you why they didn't do something. But so, yeah, I think that's important. I like that. I like that. And it's a very American um, expression at the call face. Uh, I have I have a friend yes. that has a podcast that's called exactly like that. Oh, is it? And, uh, yeah. 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 At the call face podcast, he has this yeah. e-commerce tech podcast. So we just, because I'm an Eastern European, sometimes because our languages are very different, we have parts of the, the sentence that come differently. Yeah. So when you're saying words, I'm like a Quora algorithm. I just connect them with different stuff that I know. Got it. It has helped me so far. Yeah. But so, so I, think, I think you know, but just in case someone else doesn't know, coal face is like if you're a coal miner and it you're going the- into a coal coal mine and you're going to get coal and put it in a, in a thing and send it up. When you're done for the day, your 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 face is black from coal, yeah. and 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 so that proof that you were there doing the work, right? Eating your own dog food. Yes, or, you know, eating your own dog food, right? Walking yeah. the talk. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I have one more question about the visualization part, and this one is I'm gonna dedicate this question to Tim Wilson from Search Discovery. <laughs> so Tim Wilson is um very known data analytics leader that speaks a lot about data visualization and he has this course with CXL about data visualization which is really really good okay and he was always saying at his conferences that when we're building reports it doesn't matter if that report is pretty you know like the how the, the report looks it doesn't really matter it's how you communicate and what you communicate into it yeah and I wanted to I wanted also to ask you because I've spent time using your tool. And by the way, for whoever watching and listening this, I am not promoting data box because <laughs> it sounds a lot like I am. I'm not. <laughs> but I, I'm just curious, like, what was the engineering part behind of you guys choosing those types of dashboards? And I also like the fact that you can customize them. But I think you have like some really good templates that are very, so this is me geeking out again, but, but the secret of a good visualization is to not add too much role to your brain. Right. So you're capable of understanding what you're seeing there and make sure that information gets to your, you know, to your, um, um, to your memory and you can right. keep, you know, you right. can keep it. Yeah, the more complicated the chart, I think the more overwhelming it can be for somebody, right? Yeah. I mean, the more, exactly. the more time someone has to spend looking at it, the more you might have to actually explain it to someone. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But how did we get there? I'm not sure how much of it was from uh, a conscious decision versus a necessity, to be honest with you. Continue to be honest here. And it wasn't my decision, so I might have this completely wrong. But I'll tell you, from, you know, we've talked about this. I'll tell you from my understanding. So first of all, I'm not sure I agree with Tim's perspective. I actually think the appearance of your visualization is important. And it's actually feedback we get quite often, especially from marketing agencies, that they love the design and look of our visualizations. And for those that don't know, I think what they really like, what what don't know our tool, what they like is actually the, 
it's almost monochromatic in a way, right? So like we have like themes of colors that we ask you to use and we don't actually allow you to customize. And so that enforces a color palette that works together, right? Yeah, I'm sure we've all shown up to a meeting where like somebody's got like a pink backgrounded chart with red, yellow, yellow. (laughs) (laughs) That's a hard visualization, right? Uh, Yeah. Cool tattoo, but hard visualization. So yeah, so that's part of it. The other part of it is the simplicity of the visualizations. And and that is as much a design choice as it is level of necessity for us. So on the design choice side, keep in mind, we're, we're appealing more to business users. So for them to be able to glance at the dashboard and know and, and get, a, get a read on performance, as opposed to study a visualization and understand some cause and effect, right? And so that's why like every one of our visualizations has by default um, the percent change over the time period. That's why almost Mm -hmm. all of our visualizations default to showing data over time and within a time timeline or date range. And so it's those design choices we made because of the user, right? Because because a sales leader doesn't want to have to analyze why sales is down every time, every day. Sometimes they just want to know that sales might be down or sales might be up. And so that they can either go on, go on with their day the way they planned, or they have to change motion and say, talk to the salespeople and say, why is our sales down? Right. So that's, that's the reason. The other reason is, like I said, we've built all of our integrations with 70 plus tools and we've programmed um, against, you know, probably tens of thousands of APIs to do that. And so our data storage is relatively simple at this point. We pull in uh, a metric name, a metric value, and, and a timestamp to, to keep it real simple. And that's what we store. And so you can't go in and start to do all this cause and effect. There isn't even a connection really between uh, metrics and their dimensions. We kind of code some of those. So it looks like there is, but, but, but in our core database, we're not like, we don't sessions by device is not connected to sessions by page, for example. And so we just so happen to allow you to query sessions by device by page, but, and then store that as one, one time series. So, so a lot of that is, is a result of a very simple database structure, which we're actually in the process of, of, of making more sophisticated so that we can enable some more sophisticated analysis. We have some super legit, you know, data analysts, data science. We have a bunch of PhD data scientists now, and we have a lot of engineers that that live live and breathe inside the database schema and, and all that. So um, I imagine, I imagine, because I mean, yeah, the product, the product is good and it, and it does the job. That's, that's the most important. Right. So uh, my last question, I guess, on this data visualization part before we go more into into other topics is, do you think that more data helps decision making? Oh, absolutely. I'm always asking for more data. Yeah. So I, I, it depends on the decision. I can walk you through like a decision we we just made recently. Yeah. So we we are a freemium product, so you can try us for free. We have a free trial for our paid version, so you can try the paid version before you buy it. And so as a result, we have a large support team and our the way we help people is we just offer to help get them set up. So we'll even build custom dashboards for people via chat, et cetera. We also get a little over 5,000 signups per month. And as I mentioned to you before we started recording, a lot of those people don't ever 
do much in the product. And so they never start a chat with us. And and so we reach out to them by email and ask them, hey, do you want help? Why didn't you do this? Do you want to do this? Like, we see that you're using this technology on your website. Would you like us to build a dashboard for you for that? Like, we were fairly or try to be very helpful, but we're fairly persistent there. And so the my VP of sales and support, who's VP of customer success, I think is his official title, looked at it and said, hey, we get way more sales opportunities out of chat than we do email prospecting. And so he came to me and he's like, I want to cut the email prospecting target back to 50%. And, and in order to have the team spend more time in chat, not worry about that prospecting target and really help customers more users more in chat and and like we just didn't have the data to prove that that was the right decision we had data that showed what response rate we got from prospecting and we had data that shows how many deals we get from chat but without running that experiment like it's hard to know but but running an experiment at our scale is kind of disruptive so we just said all right screw it we'll make the decision we can always reverse it and and i was really nervous about like not emailing all those people who don't respond. It represents on average about 17 deals for us every month, 17 new customers every month from the prospecting. And so we started tracking more closely where our deals are coming from. Without that data, I didn't really, we couldn't really make that informed decision. And we can see, you know, we saw in a short amount of time that we we're able to make this decision to shift the resources of the team over to chat because more of the deals are coming from there. But we didn't measure it before, so I didn't have a good, a good feel for it. But the other thing we did to validate that decision was we surveyed the team and we asked them if you could spend what more time in one of these activities in order to produce more sales opportunities for the sales team, which activity would it be? And it was overwhelmingly chat. And so that goes back to the coal face kind of like asking the team because they are at the coal face, literally what their perspective is. And that helped validate that decision. So just one example, but. Um, I believe that. I believe that. I used to work at as a, I used to work in a company a few years ago as a customer experience manager. And I kind of always sort of, you know, uh, handle the, the customer support or customer success. And I do customer support even at CXL every day. I try to spend one hour. And you, you you will find people from LinkedIn that follow me, that see me on the chat on CXL, and they're like, what are you doing here? You know, like, are yeah. you supposed to do something else? And I'm like, I'm here in the trenches. And um, yeah, it's, it's, the cold face. I can't yeah. prop. Exactly. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start using this expression. <laughs> so back when I was working for this Finnish company, I had no business doing customer support, but I was selling so much over chat just because uh -huh. I was there. In the first year when I worked there, I made 60% of the revenue from chat, one person. Oh, wow. Okay. This is a SaaS company that sells music subscription to uh, release music in China. So okay. the average order value was very small. Yeah. It was like 60 euros, 70, maybe 100, but they were adding up. Yeah. And I was like, fuck, this works. And then I started building frameworks and which with the, the companies that I consulted or the companies that I work for, yeah. I always try to add this layer of extra mile in the customer support or the customer success or whatever, whoever is on the chat yeah. to be able to seal. And it's not necessarily because you have that mindset to sell, but you have the mindset to serve. And when you're serving, you're capable, maybe you catch some people that are at the stage of decision making or at you know well they they just need that extra push so being scrappy via chat can do a lot 
for your business. So I can hopefully. Yeah, no, I uh, there isn't a really a day that goes by where we don't have we don't have like a customer telling us in chat that our support is amazing. Well, and and actually yesterday there were two people that tweeted at me saying or tweeted at us saying your support is amazing. And so I think I talked to Tiana. I think was her name. Okay. Tiana. Tiana or something. Maybe or yeah. Okay. Yep. And I was like trying to figure out where to, you know, like the classic, the classic being lazy, you know, (laughs) look for something. But she was very helpful. She stayed, spent time with me and I thought it was really cool. And it's probably a good segue to tell people how I met you. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I, when I installed your tool, I was like blown. My inbox exploded. Yeah. yeah. So then I went on Twitter because I said, okay, this is a good piece of content for Twitter. This is Yoshi talking. Yeah. I, I'm the Zionist in the world, by the way. You upset about Yeah. No, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm a Zionist as you are. So I go on Twitter and then I said, then it would be great if you guys would let me, you know, just use the tool. And then you replied to me within minutes and you were like so nice <laughs> that you completely disarmed me. And I'm like, oh my God. Okay, and I was like, okay, sir, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 you know, I, it's a known issue. We talked about it also before we started recording. Yeah. When, a, when a user comes in and sets up a lot of our product, they trigger a lot yeah. of events, which then trigger messages out to the user. It's a rare user, so you're a rare user, that actually <laughs> a lot in the product and triggered those messages. But it it's still not an excuse. We need to use the software, our software better, but we have... I think every SaaS company probably ends up doing this. We have system messages that are triggered through the app, right? Like, like your data source got disconnected, reconnected, or you know, or you know, notifications, um, yeah. things like that. You only know from the usage of the data, and so those system messages go out. And then we have intercom we use for nurturing messages that go out, and then we have individuals, like I mentioned a few minutes ago, sending prospecting messages to anyone that signs up. So. Although we've cut that back. So um, (laughs) those end up piling up and and we need one person to look at the whole, all of the messages going out and figuring out which ones we should kill, which ones we should merge, set up some better conditioning so that if someone's received a message recently that they won't receive another one. So we're working on some quick fixes and then there's a longer term fix there, of course. My my takeaway though is the fact that you were humble and nice Uh, and cool. And I was like, shit, you know, (laughs) I I remember because I, this is exactly my mindset. I was like, okay, sir, I'm sorry. I'm going to be sorry. I appreciate you calling. In fact, I, I, my, my director of one of our product directors, he was, banging the table about fixing this because when they go in and try the product to do a test or just to see how something's working or, or whatever, like they set the whole thing up. So they're, they see yeah. this happening all the time. So you weren't the first person to point it out. You weren't the first customer or user to point it out either, but yours probably put me over the edge of saying, all right, we got to fix this. <laughs> I, I am sometimes an asshole and I'm sorry for that. <laughs> been, no, asshole. Yeah, no. <laughs> I've been called that a few but, times too. <laughs> It's cool. It happens to the best of us. That's right. Um, I read something on Twitter uh, that you, I, I really enjoy following you on Twitter. Um, you can find also uh, Peter on Twitter if you check the description uh, on YouTube or on uh, the footnotes if you're listening to this. You tweeted something a while back that uh, you build your business brick by brick. 
Mm-hmm. And I thought it was really cool, and I would love to learn more about about that part. And I had some notes here. Okay, so yeah, I wanted to know the note that I'm reading or not reading. If you're listening, <laughs> the note that I'm talking about is that I just want to know like your opinion about how the growth happens from inside out, because I think the company culture is super important to the growth of the company. It's not only you know annual recurring revenue and users and so on. I think the growth of the company also um, weighs a lot on the team and, you know, like how you're working with them. So like, how, how does it happen? I would love to know more about this. Yeah. So when I say like build the company brick by brick, I mean, building different functions within the company at a, uh, like not one at a time, we probably have never done it one at a time, but close to one at a time versus, you know, 10 at a time. I think the standard playbook for a, for a VC backed SaaS software startup is to, get to stages like, you know, you, you you kind of maybe prove your product market fit. You have an MVP, depending on, you know, how successful you are, you can go raise your seed round, right? If you've already built two companies before, you can get a seed round with a piece of paper and a napkin. But, but most, most humans, you have to like build something of value and prove that the market wants it. That's when you raise your seed. And then you, to get, you raise your seed and then you probably hire two or three VPs and, and your goal is to, get to a certain amount of revenue, a certain growth rate within a certain time and and raise that series A. And that's when you then go and you hire like six or seven VPs or, or uh, to own every function and you build everything all at once. At Databox, for a, a variety of reasons, long story, we didn't really have that luxury. The short version is, you know, I joined Databox after a pivot, after they had invested about $3 million in the business and had very little revenue. And so we had a small amount of money in the bank and we really couldn't take a lot of chances. I couldn't go and hire a lot of VPs. And so I hired junior people to to start and I ran sales marketing support and the founder ran product and engineering and what little of HR we had at the time. And we we kind of just picked what's one thing we're going to figure out first and then we'll hire someone to do that. And then what's the next thing we'll figure out and we'll hire someone to do that. So in the beginning, I was running sales, doing the sales, literally doing the sales calls. And I hired a junior marketer and a junior person to run customer onboarding. Once, you know, once I kind of figured that out, I ended up hiring a sales leader. And then I started to build this marketing team a little bit bigger. And went with a very small marketing team, we just focused on blogging and one conversion point on our website, it's which are dashboard templates that you can download. And so that's all we did really for four years because that, that's, that's what enabled us to then generate enough signups to go build other building blocks, such as our support team first. And then once we had a support team, we took two of the two people from support and said, you're in sales now. <laughs> we want you to do Zoom calls. You're good with your you know, you're good with talking to talking to people and we think you'll be fine at it. We'll teach you the basics. And so now we have a, you know, a, a 10 person sales team. And then we did the same thing with customer onboarding and account management. And now we're in the process of splitting out our customer support team so that one customer support team will focus on helping free and trial users and one customer support team will focus on customers. You know, and so just each piece, same thing in marketing. We went from like, I think six or seven people in marketing to 11 or 12 people in the last six, nine months. And now we're, we have a more, more complete program where we have an affiliate program that we've launched. We're starting to do a small amount of pay-per-click. We have a much bigger product marketing team focusing on product and customer marketing. We just hired a, a person to focus in on brand and community. And so 
basically one brick at a time. We're probably doing like five bricks at a time now. You know, now we're a six million dollar uh, revenue business, profitable, and so we can afford to to take you know build buy more, buy and and buy more than one brick at a time or invest in more one more, more than one brick at a time. But that's what I mean by one brick at a time. And I could walk you through the same yeah. sequence of events on the product, right? Um, where we gradually built pieces of the product, both front end and back end, to enable the stuff. One of my guests, uh, one of my guests would uh, to see my Romanian brain again is uh-huh. associations. So, so one of my guests was saying that the important thing when you're building and i think this is something that i find with you is like to know uh, when you're it's like when you're building a chair you should know where you should put the screw and you should know where you should put the nail because right. if, you put, if you put the nail where the screw is supposed to be the chair is gonna the uh, is gonna fall so you starting building the team and then bringing leadership it shows the fact that you were trying to, I guess, stabilize what was going on. I think it's a really good strategy, actually, and I get it now. This is yeah. really cool. Yeah. Uh, thanks for thanks for sharing with us. We're approaching the end of the podcast. I would really talk to you a lot, but I'm conscious that you probably have other things to do today. I talked a lot about the future of education and uh, standard deviation. Why? Not only because I work in education, but because I have kids. And I know you told me you have a 14-year-old. Yep. So I'm sure you're dealing with a lot of interesting things because no one prepares you to be a parent and to deal right. with you know, what kids are, um, I guess, encountering right now. Yep. So I would like to know what are your thoughts about how we are preparing the children for the future? Because one thing that I notice every day is that we are teaching kids with a curriculum that was created 100 years, 50 years ago. Yeah. And we're trying to prepare these kids for a future that doesn't exist anymore. So I know it's different for every country. But tell me, what's your experience with how uh, schools in, you know, in, uh, where you're yeah. at in the United States are helping your children? Uh, you know, get, yeah, get so ready. I don't know how it is in Romania. And the school systems in, in the U.S., it's interesting there's it's a little bit of a have have nots unfortunately most schools are predominantly funded by local taxes so if you're in a town where where there's more wealth with higher property taxes then the schools tend to do better versus others so like i don't want to go on a rant on that i will say that my you know my son's in a good school i've been fortunate in my career and you know i've sent him to we we live in a town where the school systems are excellent i think what i've observed in his schooling i've been impressed and I, although the the world has certainly changed and and the pace of change of the world continues to increase i still think that the basics are are the most important thing and to me that's literally reading and comprehension and and writing and you know it could be also speaking and and math and i i see a focus of that in in my son's school and i and the teaching style is different than when i went to school i went to catholic school growing up so in the us that means it's very strict and you can't you like mistakes are not quite punished but like frowned upon so you work in his school and the way they teach now they there it's a very iterative thing where constantly giving them opportunities to to address their mistakes and so i don't know what's right but what I have noticed is that he continues to like try and learn and he's resilient. And, and so, and, and, I, and so I think that at least in our situation, my son's being prepared for the world, the kids are off also, also 
savvier with technology. He picks up stuff quicker than I think I did at his age, especially. He picks up stuff quicker than at my age now. So, so I think I think we're in a good spot. I just think that the system as a whole has a lot of inequities. I'm sure the inequities exist around the world as well. So, I think what you're doing at CXL is great, and I think the more the more we can move curriculum online and training online so that it's accessible to people worldwide, the better. I think I mentioned to you before, a big portion of our team is international. I think we have team members in, in 20 countries, 20 plus countries, including in your neck of the woods, a large number of team members in Slovenia and Serbia. I think they're your neighbors, right? Or, or maybe one country away. So, and I'm amazed at the level of positivity towards learning that exists at Databox. And I, I don't... I think it's a little bit unique at Databox, but I also think it's true in in a broader sense in in countries where people are striving to maybe have the life that they see Americans having, and not all Americans, of course, have it. But in the U.S., there's obviously potential to to have to really, if you work hard and you're smart and you put the effort in, you can be successful. And I think. That's becoming truer and truer around the world as well. And so in our team, like they're just a thirst for knowledge. It's one of our core values is, is always be learning and always be improving. And we live that not just through people doing that on their own, but we have internal systems for providing feedback, not just like, you know, at review time, but on a daily basis as we observe people's work. One of the things I love about the way businesses run now is everything is observable. Even down to every phone call that my team has, I can go and watch it and listen to it. Every Zoom call is automatically recorded, right? Chat is instantly searchable. All of our emails are done through an centralized inbox. So everybody has access to every communication with every user. And so I think that creates an environment where not only do individuals learn, but organizations learn. And of course, data is an important part of that. But uh, a really important part of that. But, and so I think, I think if you get yourself part of the right organization and you have a good good education and you have a growth mindset, which is, I think the most important thing to impart in in our youth, and you'll continue to learn the technology and the techniques and the tactics, because those always change, but the basics will yeah, I think anyway, like uh, what's clear right now is that we have access more than ever to information. And sometimes, you know, like maybe like the biggest struggles with school systems in general is to keep up with the accessibility to information that it is right now. Yes. I was saying this uh, in another episode that in the past, the teachers were the main gatekeepers of information. Right. Right now, it's just like two minutes away to, to find out, uh, you know, something and here in uh, Eastern Europe, like in school, you have to do all these crazy history lessons and uh, you, right. have, you learn about universal history and Romanian history and they just kill you with those until right. <laughs> for 12 right. years. Right. And my son is always asking me, like, what's the purpose of me learning this when I just can Google it? Yeah. And it's like it, it puts you in a position as a parent because you, you have to say what you have to. And he's like, why? You know, yeah. and this is What's just a part of the, curious, you, you know how I, I can give you my answer to that one. Oh, my God. I'm just I'm just telling him like this, I sound like my mom. I'm just quoting my mom. You have to do this because that's, that's the way you have to uh, pass the class. There's two, things. Move we'll give you two answers that I do. one. I think it's learning to learn. 
So yeah. reading and comprehending and being able to then communicate that back in a different way, that's something we do every day, right? So regardless of the topic. So I think that's sure. number one. Number, and maybe a young child won't get that. But number, number two is I think, and we're seeing this now, especially, I think, and not to get too political, but a democracy doesn't survive in an uninformed population. Maybe that's too complicated for your son or your daughter, but, but I think that's an important yeah. thing. We have to understand our history in order to avoid those mistakes again. That, exactly, yeah. I, I always tell him, you know, like, what if you're at a party and you meet a girl yeah. And you like that girl, but that girl is super passionate with history and all your success rate depends <laughs> on you. Is libido. <laughs> yeah, and he was <laughs> like, okay. That might be the best the best answer. <laughs> <laughs> he liked it. I was like, okay. That'll, like, that'll like, work until he's about 30, <laughs> maybe 40 years old. And then there, that that's not as much of a motivation anymore. <laughs> Yeah, I always joke around, joke around with him. I guess I have one more question. You have a history of efficient relationship building with HubSpot, with what you're doing right now with Databox. And I think this is a very important conversation to have, like some parting thoughts that would really help the audience. How would you advise people that get into the world of measurements and metrics, marketing, sales? whatever, in the digital world to leverage relationship uh, building and networking? Because I feel, and this is just me, that sometimes we're using social media just for vanity instead of just actually building relationships and listening to people and trying to be uh, of service rather than just, you you see on social media, it's a whole shit show. Right. But you have actual experience and historically successful experience with this. So tell me, like, what is your cheat shit? for us cheat so i'll give you i'll give you it's funny because i just wrote something internally for this we're about to launch a team that's going to focus in on on this but my advice for anyone in, in any career is is to use social networking sites or whatever you want to call them like link if you're linkedin is i think the go-to twitter is a is a go-to but you know there's business that gets done on all the platforms these days and my formula, a very simple formula, is one third reading, one third commenting, and one third writing. That's where you should how you should split up your time. If your goal is to build relationships, right? If you just want to be famous and and build a following, like pick an extreme stance and be an asshole about it, or you know find something funny and do it over and over again, like the you know I'm sure like. There's, this, there's these guys on uh, Instagram that I love. They're twins, and they walk through a busy park and want and they st- like the first twin stops somebody and asks them a question, and then the per- and then they they go on, and then the next the person keeps walking, and then the the other twin shows up and asks the same question, and like I could watch that like for hours. It's hilarious, but but like you could do that if you want to be famous online. But if you're looking to build relationships, pay attention and listen to what other people are talking about and show an interest in them and what they're doing. And that's the way you will build relationships. It, you know, and if you haven't read it, go read how to win friends and influence people. This isn't shit I made up. I just, I'm just applying it to social media. This was stuff that was, you know, people wrote about a hundred years ago. So, so that, that's my simple formula. And you got to want to do it. Like, you know, if you're not that person, if you like data and you like doing analysis, then fine, don't do that. But the single most important thing that I did in my career is to is to publish. And the only way I could write, publish, 
stuff that's relevant is if I spent time reading and, and commenting and learning from other people. So how can people find you on social media and start networking with you? Okay. I'm going to be busy now. Twitter, Twitter, <laughs> Twitter, uh, PC four media is my handle PC, the number four media. And then I'm just Peter Caputa on LinkedIn and I don't use any other platforms for business. So if you want to follow my, my flower, my perennial flower gardening, I'm on Instagram as well. I post flower pictures. <laughs> Oh, uh, everyone is going to find those things in the <laughs> description or the, or the footnotes, not the Instagram one, because I'm not on Instagram. <laughs> Peter, thank you so much for coming today. I really enjoyed our conversation and uh, this is a great season finale for me. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks everyone for listening or watching. Thank you, Juliana. I enjoyed the conversation. It was uh, different than most, so I appreciate the conversation and <laughs> like your angles. Thank you. Thank you so much and see, see everyone in season two.